Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China. Today, I am hosting alone without Kaiser, but we have a very interesting subject to discuss: uh, the air and the birds that fly in it. Our first guest is a uh, first-time Seneca guest, Terry Townsend, who is uh, the author of the Birding Beijing blog and Twitter feed. Um, and also program director of Globe, an organization that works with legislators in many countries uh, across the uh, globe,、uh, with the aim of encouraging better laws on climate change and sustainability. Welcome, Terry. And did I get that right? Yes, and I yeah, well, I've been in China since 2010. So、um, my day job is、uh, policy director with Globe International. But we're going to start off talking about b- birds. And joining us to both qu- help me question Terry. Uh, and also to talk in the last part of the show、uh, about the air that the birds have to fly in、uh, is John Kaiman, Beijing correspondent for the Guardian, and author of a recent piece on the costs of cleaning up China's skies, titled "China Faces a 176 Billion Dollar Bill to Clean Up Air Pollution." Welcome, John. Thank you so much, Jeremy. So let's get straight into the birds,、uh, Terry. Can you first give us a, a big picture of the state of、uh, our avine friends in China? What is bird life like in China? What are the problems? What's the good news, if any? Many people、uh, living here will, would think that there are very few birds here.、Um, there are actually four, over 450 species being recorded in the capital,、um, which makes Beijing one of the best、uh, major capital cities in the world for bird life. Um, so there's there's a lot of、uh, good things.、Uh, okay, about, well let's、uh, actually, if, if we can go right into the details from the big picture before we <laughs> even finish, why is Beijing good for birds? Because I mean, it seems a very inhospitable place for any form of life. <laughs> yeah, well that's a that's a good question. It's one that I get often asked, and、uh, the main reason is actually not that Beijing is this environmental paradise,、uh, which we all know it isn't. Um, it's actually the geographic location of Beijing. It's on a major, what we call flyway. So、um, there's a huge landmass to the north of Beijing, which is very sparsely inhabited by humans. So you have Siberia,、uh, a large part of eastern Siberia,、um, northeast China, Manchuria, and so on.、Um, many, many birds breed here, and of course, this area also gets very, very cold in winter. So most of these birds, quite sensibly. Uh, fly south for the winter and spend the winter in South China, Southeast Asia, or even as far away as Australia. And most of these birds have to stop on their migration、um, at least once,、uh, often several times, to refuel, rest, and so on. And Beijing is right on their flyway, so、um, some of the lakes and the woodland、uh, that we have in Beijing sort of offers a temporary. Residents for these birds, and that's the reason Beijing has recorded so many birds.、Uh, it's that they they stop off here; they don't live、uh, here let, all the time. Let's be clear: when you say Beijing, you, you're including the entire Beijing、uh, district, the countryside, the municipality, Beijing, the municipality of Beijing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, within the Fifth Ring Road, you're quite limited、uh, in terms of the number of species you'll well, see. Well, let's go <laughs> to that level. Of so, in the city itself, what what kind of bird life is there? Um, well, e- even within the city, it's、uh, it's often surprising, particularly in spring and autumn migration season.、Um, it's possible to see、uh, quite a large number. I mean, I did, for example, this year I did a an experiment. I visited the the British ambassador's garden 
every day for a week uh, in the middle of May, and I did the same thing. In did September. he know you were coming? <laughs> he did. Well, it was prearranged. You didn't yeah, jump yeah. Over I didn't. I didn't jump over the fence <laughs> and uh, risk being shot. No. Um, and uh, yeah, I recorded something like fifty different species uh, over a week, just in that little space. Um, so any park May I ask and garden. What, what were they? Yeah, sure. I mean, some of the highlights, um, things like white's thrush, um, Siberian thrush, Siberian ruby throat, which is a very attractive bird with a bright red throat like a robin. Um, things like uh, rufous-breasted woodpecker, which is a long-distance migrant. Um, there were four in the ambassador's garden on one particular day. Um, so a real variety, you know. Did you see uh, Seneca's uh, bird, uh, our, our um, own personal uh, mascot, is the azure-winged magpie? Did you see azure-winged magpies? Every day. Right, every day. <laughs> so can you tell us about the azure-winged magpie? What, you know, what kind of bird is it? What, what does it eat? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it's a resident in Beijing. It's probably the bird that most people uh, have seen who live in Beijing. It's the most obvious. It's very vocal goes around in large groups. Um, so it's a very obvious bird. Um, it feeds, it's quite an opportunistic feeder. So it feeds on a lot of things like seeds. Um, you know, it'll poke around and get leftovers and, and all sorts. So it's quite a, quite a clever, adaptable bird. And it's quite an interesting bird um, ornithologically because it uh, has a very weird distribution. Um, there's a small population of azure wing magpies in Iberia. Uh, in southern Europe and nobody really knows whether this population um, is, is originally grew up there and just sort of the, the rangers contracted to leave this little pocket or whether they were introduced maybe by early travellers that visited the Far East and um, brought them back and maybe either released them or, or they escaped into the wild so it's, it's an interesting so, so to be clear it's only found in China or, or, or Northeast Asia and it's, it's found in Eastern Asia, yeah, Central Asia as well, a little bit, um, and in Iberia. So it's, uh, yeah, it's got a, it's got a strange distribution. Um, but it, of course, uh, you know, in East Asia, it's it's a, it's a quite a common bird. Yeah, you know, it goes as far north as uh, very north of China. I mean, I, at Christmas I was in Harbin and saw saw several. So, yeah. John, you had a question about crows. <laughs> well, I noticed that the birds here seem very seasonal. During the winter, these back black crows swoop in and, and nest in all the trees and in the summer uh the birds seem a little bit smaller and more colorful they're, they're very they seem attuned to my emotions here um is this a coincidence well i mean it reflects the food supply um available so a lot of the smaller birds for example that you see in spring and summer and early autumn are insectivorous uh so they they're migratory so they will come and take advantage of the glut of insects uh in northern uh, China uh, in the summer and of course in the winter when that supply dries up they have to move south and, and the, the dementors birds, come in yeah exactly in. so the crows um, which are a real spectacle by the way you know in in parts of Beijing uh, early evening they come in and roost on the trees uh, near the streetlights uh, in some of the big streets in Beijing they're very clever you know crows are known to be very clever and they know that it's a little bit warmer uh, a little bit safer um, to to sleep uh, in the streets of Beijing, and that's yeah, and that's what they do. So. Got another question here. I'm I'm curious about the link between politics and bird watching. I mean, you hear all the time about Mao launching a genocidal campaign against sparrows, and I think it was the 1970s. 
And so Beijing was overrun by spiders because people killed all the sparrows. They, he thought they were a pest. Um, has this sort of swung the balance for, you know, bird, bird life in Beijing? Do you see species that you wouldn't have seen otherwise? Uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, certainly, I think what was interesting about that exercise about uh, Mao... But uh, just uh, a small uh, pedant's correction. It was in the late <laughs> 50s. The, the, it was a full pest campaign, and uh, one of them was little birds, basically. Sorry. It was, it was a great <laughs> forward. Thing. Yeah, it was a Mao campaign. Yes. Well, I think one of the, one of the interesting things about that was it just it demonstrated the the role that um, birds play in our ecosystem. And it's, and it's a role that, you know, not everybody understands and it's one of the one of the reasons why it's important to maintain diversity biodiversity because every species will play a role in an ecosystem um, and the more we lose the more we risk that ecosystem breaking down um, and these ecosystems are what our whole economy uh, ultimately depends on so so i think that was a, that was a very um interesting example of uh, how important birds are to us uh, as humans and uh, it's actually been very well documented recently uh, there's, a, there's a book uh, recently out by Mark Cocker and David Tipling called Birds and People and that sort of details the relationship between birds and humans um, across the world many examples sort of culturally and economically mm. and and I think that's a that's a great book to read if you want to to sort of get an understanding of, of that link but linking to politics you know it's uh that's a bit, uh, I'm not sure I want to go there. <laughs> what about, you You have a project uh, uh, to preserve, um, at least it started with one species, right? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. When I came to China, uh, as well as being sort of overwhelmed by the diversity of birds in China, I very soon learned that there were several that were in real trouble. Um, you know, really populations declining fast and uh, in, in danger of extinction. And um, from speaking to several Chinese ornithologists, um, they all told me that this particular small brown bird called the Yankuski's bunting, um, which lives in a very small area of Inner Mongolia and Jilin province, uh, was the one under most threat. Um, so, you know, given that I've got so much out of birding over many years, I, I wanted to do what I could to help so I started to learn about it and uh, then started a campaign to raise some money uh, to to try to um, get enough resource to to put in place some of the the things that need to happen to protect this bird so and how did it go uh, well it's going it's going pretty well so far I mean the popular just to give you context the population of this bird is is the known population is under 100 individuals um, and it's it's got a very specialist habitat. It lives in the traditional grassland, and this grassland is under threat um, primarily from overgrazing. There are a lot more animals now being farmed uh, in northeast China that are just keeping the grass much shorter than than this bird needs. Um, and also agriculture in terms of crops. So a lot of the local farmers are now ploughing up the grassland to make space for, to grow crops. So there there are, there are several threats. Um, but what's clear, uh, the money that, that we've raised so far has gone into surveys. So we've, we've um, had some volunteers and I've gone up myself to sort of survey the population and to try to identify new sites as well where this bird might live. Um, because the first thing to do is to understand this bird, what it needs, what it feeds on, um, you know, where it nests, all the, you know, how it lives. 
and then you can begin to to put in place measures to uh, protect it protect the habitat and to save it and so that's sort of the stage we're at now is sort of like, uh, information gathering learning about population its habits um, and also um, starting the conversation with the local government in inner mongolia jilin province uh, about the measures that, that are needed to save this bird Wow, a bird of less than 100 individuals. That's really quite remarkable. Um, but, I mean, John, do you have any more bird questions? Well, what's the state of ornithology in Beijing? How many people are studying this? What are your resources? Yeah, well, uh, it's not. Uh, there's not a lot of money being put into ornithology in China. Um, in fact, I, I met with uh, Professor Zhang, uh, Zheng Wang, uh, recently, who's the uh, Secretary General of the China Ornithological Society, um, and he was saying that uh, he's really hoping that over the next, over this current leadership, the new leadership, that um, there will be more money put into research because he's really hampered by the resources that he has at his disposal, and of course the number of scientists in China is much lower than than we have in Western Europe or you know the, the states. Uh, um, but encouragingly, there are more, more and more students now starting to, to want to learn these sciences. Uh, so that, that is a big positive. Um, I mean, I regularly go to the universities uh, in Beijing and elsewhere to, to meet with students who are interested in, in ornithology. And so that, that really encourages me for the future. So there's no five-year plan, but there's hope <laughs> for optimism. Exactly. Um, can I ask... Um, because bird, bird, interest in birds, bird watching and birding, it's almost a shorthand for a kind of obsessive sort of train spottery anoraki uh, thing. And I say that out of no disrespect to you, Terry, because I myself <laughs> am a birder, although not uh, one uh, with uh, your talents. Um, but I grew up in South Africa and, you know, bird watching. Uh, there are a lot of birds in South Africa. It's a great place for bird watching. And when you spend a lot of time in the bush, you get a bit bored with lions and elephants after a while <laughs> and, because there's so much more variety in bird life. But I do recognize that it's, it's kind of a dorky activity in a way. Um, but, I mean, how can one make – why should other people care about birds, people who don't care about birds? Why, why are they important? Hmm. Well, I think I think the first thing to say is that I think in the West, you're right, it is a bit of a sort of anoraki uh, thing to do. You know, I mean, when I was young, when I was an adolescent teenager, I was almost embarrassed uh, going bird watching sometimes because my friends would, you know, be out trying to uh, uh, pick up girls and so on. And I'd be like, no, I'm just going to sneak out at five in the morning to go and <laughs> count birds on my beach, local beach. Um, and there's but, uh, always the joke about who I'm like, without feathers. Exactly. <laughs> right? yes. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that joke. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's um, very painful. Yeah. Everybody who makes it thinks they're the first one to think it. Exactly, <laughs> yes. No, don't worry. I've heard that uh, several times. Um, I think, uh, but here, I, I don't get a sense of that at all. So the interesting thing, I think, in China is that it's actually becoming almost trendy or uh yeah, it's certainly viewed as a positive thing to be interested in birds and i think that stems from the education system here uh people often tell me that you know they had no education about nature about wildlife uh no sort of field trips uh to go and look at birds or animals uh, mm. while they're at school so they, they feel a real lack of a connection with with nature and um, so by by going bird watching and uh, you know coming out or going out with somebody who who knows a bit, 
they can learn a great deal and it really um opens their eyes to to the wildlife that uh, that is here not just in beijing but you know in china as a whole and and i think you know that's the key step when, when people know what is there they you know, there's much a greater chance they want to protect it um, most people are not aware uh, of what's there so um you know they don't care that that things are, are going extinct um, but once you ha- have had that connection I think that's you know it really makes a difference and and you see many many people then going on to sort of do things to help and sort of raise awareness and so on. So but in terms of your question about why should people care? I mean I think it goes back to this you know I think the Mao experiment was a was a good example of of ha- just the role that birds play in us in our uh, in society and it, and it's and it is directly linked to our economy. You know if the more birds we lose the more you know, it, consequences there will be. Uh, and we don't know what those consequences are necessarily. Some will be uh, very small, some could be very big, and there could be a tipping point, you know, where all of a sudden um, there are major impacts uh, that affect us. So I think, you know, where where it is relatively easy, relatively cheap to do, we should apply the precautionary principle and try to avoid these extinctions, um, you know, because it is for our own our own benefit. And that that's sort of beyond the, you know, just the the enjoyment that people get from going out and, and watching birds. So let's move on to the stuff that surrounds the birds, the air, <laughs> the sky, the favorite topic of the moaners and groaners, the PM 2.5, <laughs> the filthy shit we breathe uh-huh. if we live in Beijing, or increasingly, it seems, Shanghai, uh, which recently faced a, a bout of, of Beijing-style pollution and uh, caused much worries down south. Um, John, so you, you recently had this article in The Guardian, China faces a $176 billion bill to clean up air pollution. Um, can you tell us about it? What, 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 where do these numbers come from and you know, how are they calculated and, and what does it mean? I mean, it's hard to tell what the mechanics are behind coming up with a figure like that. But when you look at official efforts to reduce the air pollution in cities like Beijing, uh, you see them take a lot into account. And one of the problems um, with actually resolving the air pollution problem is that it's such a multifaceted problem. Like the pollution doesn't only come from one source. Uh, It comes from small industry. It comes from large industry. It comes from vehicle emissions. uh, It comes from... uh, or at least the government would like it to believe that it comes from barbecuers on, on the street. Um, so there are so many places that it comes from, it's really hard to, to tackle the pollution problem without a, a multifaceted approach. And I think the size, the degree, the, the, um, just how much money the government says it would cost is reflective of just the broad array of things that they would have to do to actually get rid of this problem. And this number, uh, this this number of $176 billion, uh, that came from Wang uh, Jinnan, deputy head of the Chinese Academy for Environmental Planning. Is that right? Yes. So this is somebody whose job it is to try and figure this mess out. And he's basically saying, this is what, this is the budget I need. Yeah, he is. And Terry, does that sound like, what do you think of that number? How does that, I mean, because you, you work, you, I mean, your organization works with uh, uh, politicians, legislators around the world yeah. on stuff like this, right? I mean, does yeah. that? Uh, I think that, I mean, the figure is not, itself is not that important, but I think it's indicative of the, of the scale of the problem, as, you know, as, as we've just heard. So I think, 
you know it's it's a very complex problem it's not an intractable one i mean it's it's one that that uh, they can deal with um it will cost but there will also be huge benefits i mean there'll be a huge economic benefit to to china for clean, cleaning this up but uh, you say that because you're kind of peddling this shit right but, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I, do, do you get i don't think that? it's a hard sell you know <laughs> <laughs> So you know, I, I've got to be. Um, but I mean, do you think that the the uh, Chinese government is? Do they feel the same way? Yeah, I think. I mean, you know, you've only got to. I think one of the most remarkable things in in China over the last you know, couple of years has been the, uh, the 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 pressure on air pollution and the reaction. You know, we're now seeing you know measurements of air pollution in in a whole host of cities across China. Um, which is a huge change from just you know two or three years ago when they were denying you know when it was fog and mist and and you know and criticizing the American embassy for their Twitter feed and so on. So I think the, the Chinese government recognizes that this this is a an important issue for society and and their legitimacy you know the party's legitimacy. So I think you know it, it makes absolute sense for a number of reasons to to tackle this. Can we switch the topic around a little bit and look at like the media uh, and social media and why pollution is such an interesting story in terms of the media? And John, I'd like we before the show we were chatting a little bit about you know stuff that you've written about China, and uh, you were telling me that you know air pollution is 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 a is clickbait. <laughs> it's, uh, air pollution yeah. is kind of like you know cats or something. It gets people reading the stories. Well, other than the simple reason that it's pretty shocking to open up your wind, your your you know your blinds every day and look out and not be able to see the building across the street from you, um, it's this very shocking, very visceral thing, and it's easy to capture in photographs. If you look at any um, China smog story online, the main photograph is almost inevitably going to be uh, some attractive woman wearing a mask with basically nothing in the background because it's all been obscured by smog. And that image will stick with you. It's far clearer than anything about water pollution or soil pollution, which is a very difficult thing to capture. Um, there's that. There's probably also uh, an element of Schadenfreude um, in that you read stories about China's rise, um, the rise and rise of China. Um, in the States, China is viewed as a, a competitor um, and often as a threat. And to see that very in a in a very visually striking way that China isn't at the level of development that that it can address this problem this this very very clear and pressing issue of cleaning up its air. Um, I, I think a, a lot of people take away a lot of meaning from that. How fair is it that foreign journalists spend so much of their ink on or not ink their bits, their their pixels? On, on air pollution? Well, it's funny that you ask that because I think air pollution is one of the few issues that foreign journalists have um, uh, sort of effectively, like their reporting has effectively uh, you know, ad addressed the issue and almost changed the way that people look at the issue. Um, there was a flurry of reporting in, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was 2011, about... Uh, China's reaction to the U.S. embassy um, air feed, AQI feed, um, and how China's blocking the AQI feed. And that 
story was translated in, into Chinese and it made its way around microblogs and it made its way into the Chinese press uh, eventually. Um, and I think that caused a sea change in how people but think about it. But don't you think pollution. that was the U.S. Embassy's Twitter feed, not the press? Uh, originally, yeah. If you, if you look for a sort of patient zero there. But, uh, but the foreign press was part of... It was a big, it was a big part of it. It was the foreign press and then onto Weibo. And Terry, do you have any experience of like the Chinese government's sensitivity to like media about the environment? I mean, does, how does that work? Because, you know, it often seems to me that um, the Chinese government responds to negative press, not in the way that many of the proponents of a free press would hope, you know, the, the, the response to uh, reporting on sensitive issues is to well, you know, obviously the fist needs yeah. to come down a little harder. But I mean, in the, in the case of air pollution, maybe it is different. I mean, do you have any experience of that? Not, I mean, not directly. I think, I mean, my impression. Uh, I mean, an issue like air pollution is something that is an issue of international you know, reputation, um, and I think that is, you know, as a as a whole, is something that the Chinese government cares about. Um, whether the Western press coverage of air pollution has an impact on China's domestic policy, I'm I'm less convinced. Uh, I think it would be it. Yeah, I think the Twitter feed certainly had an impact. I mean, I, I can remember British visitors, experts on these issues that that talk to Chinese colleagues in the government and about air pollution, and they would get out their iPhone and they would get a VPN and they would go onto the US Twitter feed to tell you what the pollution was, uh, how bad it was that day. So, you know, even Chinese officials were using uh, the US Twitter feed for their right. information. Yeah. So, and I think that certainly had an impact. Um, I mean, I'm sure the foreign uh, coverage of, of, of that added to that pressure, um, but I think it's, it's more domestic. Uh, that certainly has the as the greater pressure. It's also one of those few subjects that's sensational and also important. And everybody who lives in Beijing has got to breathe the stuff, so you can't really hide from it, no matter how rich from it. or powerful you are. Mm -hmm. I suppose that helps. So then, um, what could I ask uh, a terrible thing of both of you uh, for a prediction? Uh, <laughs> not a prediction, but I mean, how are you? Are you are you optimistic or pessimistic about China's ability to deal with pollution? And if you are optimistic, I mean, what kind of time frame are we talking about? And I won't ever hold you to these <laughs> things. <laughs> I, <laughs> Do you want to go first? I'm generally, I, I'm I'm generally optimistic, and. Um, while seeing, you know, the amount of money that China is expected to spend on cutting air pollution doesn't make me any more optimistic or pessimistic um, because there's such a gap between legislation and implementation. Just knowing that the Chinese government sees people's response to this air pollution as a threat to their legitimacy makes me optimistic. Because when they see that threat, that's when they take action. Hmm. Nicely put. <laughs> um. I'm not optimistic in the short term, but I'm optimistic, uh, I guess, in the sort of medium long term. I mean, I think you know, it's an issue that can be resolved. Uh, I mean, each source uh, can be tackled. Uh, you know, there's technology, there are ways to manage traffic, there are you know, electric vehicles. Uh, there's many, many things that they can do. Um, in the short term, I think there are big barriers in terms of vested interests, you know, in the coal industry and so on. So I think um, 
very big problems to overcome, but I'm optimistic in the medium to long term. But you'd think if Xi Jinping can cut down Zhou Yongkang, he's like one of the most powerful people in the universe. Then he must be able to deal with air pollution. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, he's Darth Vader. Or, um, <laughs> he's, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, now we should go on to the final segment of the show, which is recommendations. And uh, Terry, can I start with you? Yeah, cool. I think I already mentioned um, one book, um, which is called Birds and People. And it's about the relationship between birds and people across the world. And uh, by a guy called Mark Golley and uh, David Tipling is the photographer for it. Some stunning photographs, some stunning writing as well. Um, I think Mark also actually writes for The Guardian. <laughs> uh, so so uh, I'm sure uh, it's a doubly recommended. Um, so that yeah, my recommendation would be to, to read that book. All right, I'll go in the middle then, and um, uh, just because host's privilege, and I'm going to recommend a series on the Washington Post websites called uh, Graph of the Year, where they've got various people such as Bill Gates and Peter Thiel to recommend their favorite graph of the year. And one of them, uh, connection with today's topic, is Jonathan Franzen, the novelist, who also happens to be a fanatic birder. And uh, he has a graph on the causes of annual bird mortality, uh, I think, in the United States, which is just interesting if you're interested in the subject. John, what about you? Heard a fascinating podcast a few days ago. It was a New Yorker Out Loud podcast featuring Peter Hessler. And um, he used to be a China correspondent for the New Yorker, and he now lives in Cairo. And he spoke at length about uh, differences in the, in the political systems between China and Egypt. Um, he spoke about uh, the way that people speak in both countries, the way that people are, the way that they interact with foreigners. Um, I found it fascinating being a China correspondent now, knowing sort of um, how it compares to you know other places that are that are equally fascinating sort of politically and socially. Um, and also to know what Peter Hester has been up to. He's a great writer. That sounds great. I'm going to listen to that. So, uh, Terry, John, thank you very, very much for being on the Cynical Podcast. And uh, hopefully we'll get to have both of you on again in the future. And uh, uh, to everyone out there, we will uh, be here again next week on the Cynical Podcast. Good night. <laughs>